Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next two hours are devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, my wife's very favorite thing for me to say. Well, almost, I guess, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for the open-minded, willing to challenge some of those old ideas behind what we think we know, who we are, and who we might just become. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We have a terrific chat room with some very special folks that join us every week, so don't miss out. Join the chat room today. All right, Ravinder, it's time for you to invite everyone to that chat room and tell us all what makes it just so special. You know, we do have a lovely chat room. There are some people in there who have been... um in the chat room ever since we started the chat room. How long ago has that been now? That's been five, six years. Yeah. So there are there, you know, they're there every week. You're joining in the conversation. We are learning and we are growing together. But there are also those people who just stop by whenever they can or, you know, there are people that come and watch the chat room, don't actually speak up in it and everything is okay. We have great dialogue there. Great lot of information. Um, I hope to see you there too. So come join me at provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Now, you know, the show's now syndicated out in a lot of places. Yeah. They'll hear the show after it's aired live. That's right. So tell them about I mean, and they the can still room, access yeah. the chat. Go ahead. The chat room at that point won't be live, but if you go to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat, you can still replay the chat room. So you will, you know, you'll get access to the the conversation that we were having at the time. And as I said, you will learn a lot from that because, you know, sometimes you can have someone on the air that half the people in the chat room are very supportive of and the other half are kind of skeptical. But we, you know, we hash it out in the chat room. We talk about it. You know, we figure out what there is to, to gain from them message it's great fun so yeah if you're not hearing us live you know you can still come back and replay the chat room and, send and you us can actually comments. you can actually replay the chat room while you're listening to it on one of the other networks and it streams you know pretty well in synchronous in yeah synchronous yeah anyway together with uh <laughs> you know the live show you you also often have the authors themselves in there or you know some of their staff so that they can add um, additional information. We do, and sometimes they provide links to, you know, extra stuff or extra freebies in some instances. So you'll find links and um, other information right there as well. Plus the fact, you know, right beneath the chat room, I also provide additional links, you know. So if you want to learn more about that particular guest, everything is really easy right there at provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. All right. <clears throat> Now, in our Spotlight of the Week segment this week, we turn our attention to tolerance. This past week, the news was filled with a story about one man who, in his private life, made a contribution to a political campaign a few years ago, only to find that for doing so, he had become the target of a group who allegedly insists on tolerance, fair play, equal rights. The headlines read, 
Mozilla co-founder CEO Brendan Eich, who came under fire this week for donating to a campaign to ban gay marriage in California, has resigned. Eich, who became the CEO of the nonprofit company behind Mozilla Firefox on March 24th, had donated $1,000 for the successful Proposition 8 ballot measure that passed in November 2008. Last year, California's ban on gay marriage was overturned when the Supreme Court left in place a lower court's ruling against the measure. Quoting ABC News, quote, After the announcement that Ike would become CEO last week, some Mozilla staff protested his appointment while three of Mozilla's directors resigned. OkCupid okay, protested by refusing to allow users to run the dating website with a Firefox browser. A statement from an OkCupid spokesman said that the dating site firm is, quote, pleased that OkCupid's boycott has brought tremendous awareness to the critical matter of equal rights for all individuals and partnerships. Today's decision reaffirms Mozilla's commitment to that cause, close quote. Now, and Firefox did release a statement affirming their commitment to a tolerance policy insisting on the importance of equal rights. So I have two questions. First, since President Obama opposed gay marriage in 2008, should we boycott him and should he be forced to resign in the name of equal rights? Second, what is meant by tolerance when there is virtually none for someone who disagrees with you? We tolerate all who agree. If you hold a dissenting opinion, we do all we can to marginalize and publicly embarrass you and thereby send a loud and clear message to any potential opposition, stay out of our way or else. In my view, tolerance and or equal rights apply to all. The Ike situation is an example of intolerance trumping tolerance. This sort of activity suppresses free speech and causes people to self-censor out of fear. And history shows us what happens when a society fails to speak up, fearful of certain reprisal. And you can add this to the mix. Ike's support of Proposition 8 was in 2008. His punishment came in 2014, six years later. Maybe like the president, his sentiment has changed. I remember Paula Dean's crucifixion over what she might have said many years earlier. And there appears, therefore, to be no statute of limitation on even your private thoughts. Thought police on patrol, and you'd better watch out. Indeed, know this. If you are a Muslim, or a staunch Christian, or any number of other folks that may have opposed an issue, such as gay marriage, recognize that you have been selected for intolerance by the same folks that, in the name of tolerance, sent Brendan Ike down the road. You know, there is something known as gang stalking. Defined, the term refers to, quote, a set of tactics used in counterintelligence operations involving the covert surveillance and harassment of a targeted individual. The goal of such operations in the parlance of counterintelligence personnel is to subvert or neutralize an individual deemed by the government agency or its informants to be an enemy. 
Now, if you think about it for a moment, whenever a group of individuals targets someone with the sole purpose of marginalizing them, even sabotaging their career as with Brendan Ike, how is this any different from the operations of an intelligence organization determined to marginalize some target because they're speaking out against that agency? Snowden comes to mind. All right. Your thoughts on this one, Ravinder? Oh, dear. I could rant on this one. This story has me hopping mad. You know, it is such a dangerous, slippery slope. Um, it is the intolerant face of tolerance. It's when compassion wraps around on itself and can become very uncompassionate, incompassionate, whatever the word is. Um, it is, you know, it is squashing uh, free speech and and freedoms. If you think about it, whenever there's any vote, any election of any kind, you know, rarely ever does the person who win, win by a landslide of 90, 95, 100%. doesn't happen. It's going to be close to the 50. Every presidential election, you know, they tend to be the 60, 40 or somewhere right in there, which means all of the... Uh, if you happened, I mean, Proposition 8 passed. 60-40 would be a landslide, you know. I know. Afford, okay. Exactly. All right. 49-51, that's so, a big But even so, you know, okay. that means there's yeah. lots of people around who don't agree with you. Proposition 8 passed, which means over 50% of the people who voted for it, you know, wanted that. So are we going to penalize all of those people as well? Everyone's like, okay, if you vote this way, you're going to be in trouble. I mean, there are different degrees of support. Yeah, he gave $1,000. Some people would have given hundreds of thousands. Some people would have given five or ten. You know, there is that whole range. And then people do become afraid to speak up. You know, I am really upset still about Paula Dean. Who spoke up for her when that happened? You know, the story that she recounted happened way back in the past. And, you know, it was a word that she was brought up with. It's just part of your old language. How often do any of us, when we're in an old familiar environment, revert to the old familiar speech? You know, I'm forever saying mankind. And the minute it comes out of my mouth, I go, whoops. whoops I know, you get you in know? trouble for that now. It's no, it's no, you, you're absolutely right. Uh, bottom line is we could spend a great deal of time on this. But for the record, I want to say something here, you know. Neither of us are opposed to gay marriage, and that's simply because marriage is a legal contract. And um, there is no reason for a person uh, who supports the Constitution to oppose it. On the other hand, the tactics that can be used when special interest groups decide to target individuals, to bully those individuals, to, for all intent and purposes, carry on just as i said with the gang stalking that threatens the very nature of our democracy all right moving on every week i read some of your letters as our way of paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful last week we replayed our show with professor jay garfield jamie wrote i love your radio show professor garfield was such a terrific guest it's so refreshing to hear something new when you tune in to your show. Your shows are simply refreshing. I like that. Thank you, Jamie. Shirley wrote, I listened to one of your shows on YouTube that resonated with me, the talk of Visions, Trips, and Crowded Rooms by David Kessler. 
These programs are replays of interviews, and I did not realize that. However, subjects such as this have no issue of the time. Thanks for this. I will check your schedule of current programs via your website to see what's coming. Well, thanks for your letter, Shirley. And for all of you out there, we do have a YouTube channel as well as podcasts, etc. And we're currently uploading all of our shows to YouTube, including those from the past seven years. So check us out on YouTube, and you can find the links for that on ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. Dorothy wrote, I found your radio show this year and started listening from the beginning. I'm up to September 2011. It's fun to listen to at the end of the day. I'm glad you like Dorothy. Deb wrote, I just heard Eldon speak in Denver. He's amazing and truly captivated the audience. I've read a couple of his books, and I'm on the mailing list, but he mentioned free downloads, so here I am. I'd love to attend his workshops, and we'll look into that next. Well, thanks to all of you who were able to attend, and those free downloads can be found at innertalk, I-N-N-E-R-T-A-L-K dot com. Tammy wrote, I heard your great presentation at the Denver I Can Do It conference. I purchased your new book, Choices and Illusions, and I'm enjoying it. Thank you. Jody wrote, I saw Eldon speak at the Oregon Hypnotherapy Conference and loved it. I'm looking forward to using InterTalk both professionally and personally. Rob wrote, Dr. Taylor has such a caring way about him. I have heard him in the radio interviews, and I'm reading his book, Mind Programming. I love it. Well, thank you, Rob. I like this one. You're going to love this one. Charles wrote, I heard you on Coast to Coast last night. I woke up like you suggested and smiled and said thank you a few times. Then I had sex with my wife, first time in over a year. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Well, listen, Charles, I told you it would set a new mood, so just keep on smiling and saying thank you. It's a good one, isn't it? That is actually perfect. So all you ladies out there, just tell your husbands to tune in to Elder Taylor. (laughs) Sorry, couldn't resist. (laughs) Okay, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but I do invite you to opine by sending your email to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldentaylor.com. Or by joining me on Facebook. We can't get all of your letters on the air, but they do impact our programming. And once again, I both appreciate and thank you for your feedback and continued support. Now to this week's show, Forbidden Archaeology. Michael Cremo, also known as the Forbidden Archaeologist, is hailed as a groundbreaking research pioneer and international authority on archaeological anomalies. His landmark bestseller, Forbidden Archaeology, first published in 1993, already translated into 26 languages, challenged the very foundation of Darwinian evolution. Michael continues to dig up enigmatic discoveries in the fossil record and shake up accepted paradigms, exploring famous archaeological sites around the world, journeying to sacred places in India, appearing on national television shows in the United States or other countries, lecturing at mainstream science conferences or speaking to alternative gatherings of global intelligentsia. As he crosses disciplinary and cultural boundaries, he presents to his various audiences a compelling case for negotiating a new consensus on the nature of reality. Michael Cremo is a member of the World Archaeological Congress and the European Association of Archaeologists, as well as a research associate in history and philosophy of science for the 
Bhaktivedanta Institute. After receiving a scholarship to study international affairs at George Washington University, Michael began to study the ancient Sanskrit writings of India known as the Vedas. In this way, he has broadened his academic knowledge with spirituality from the Eastern tradition. That is what Dr. <laughs> this is what Dr. Philip Johnson of UC Berkeley had to say about forbidden archaeology, and I quote, It is a remarkably complete review of the scientific evidence concerning human origins. It carefully evaluates all of the evidence, including the evidence that has been ignored because it does not fit the dominant paradigm. Anyone can learn a great deal from the author's meticulous research and analysis, whatever one concludes about their thesis regarding the antiquity of human beings. Michael is the author of My Science, My Religion, The Forbidden Archaeologist, Human Devolution, Forbidden Archaeology, Forbidden Archaeology's Impact, and the Hidden History of the Human Race. So let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Mr. Michael Cremo. Good to be with you, Eldon, and all your listeners. Well, it's been a pleasure. I, I mean, I've been looking forward to this show. So let's, let's just get down to it. We have three basic objectives here that we like to flesh out. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And how do we use it? So let's begin with you, sir. Please tell us a little about your background, and most particularly, what motivated you to do the kind of research involved in forbidden archaeology? Well, Eldon, I I think it has uh, quite a bit to do with the way I was raised. My father was an Air Force intelligence officer, and Mm -hmm. That meant a few things for me as I was growing up. First of all, it it meant I was living in a lot of different places in the United States and abroad. So I I learned very early in my life that there's more than one way to look at things, that different people in different parts of the world or different parts of the country have different ways of of looking at things. and that was an important influence on me as I was growing up. I I also learned that there there is such a thing as secret knowledge in in the world. There are things that go on that many people don't know about. Uh, you know, having grown up among people in the intelligence services and the diplomatic service, I I learned that. So uh, as I grew older, I had to think about what I wanted to do with my life, although and although I had been exposed to a lot of different worldviews and ways of looking at things, I had to come up with, with my own take on how to approach uh, the, the world around me. And among all the different worldviews that I had been exposed to, the worldview of the spiritual worldview of ancient India appeared to make the most sense to me. Now, I don't claim to have any monopoly on truth, and I realize that truth can be found in a lot of different places, and there are cross-cultural truths that I don't think anyone has a monopoly on truth, but but still I, I, I found uh, the spiritual teachings of ancient India and the Vedic literature to be quite meaningful for, for, for me. And in those teachings, in those ancient writings, I learned of accounts of 
human populations existing on Earth far earlier than most scientists are now prepared to accept going right back to the very beginnings of the history of life on Earth. So, so now you're going, you're going, forgive me, I don't mean to interrupt, but you're going no, to the that's day. Okay. It's, your it's show. from the day Dandy, no, no, it's ours. You're, you're here now. So, and you're here because we want to hear from you. Okay. okay. Uh, but I just want to be clear as, as we're going along. So you're taking this initially, you're taking this perspective of the older, uh, the, the greater age, I, sh- I guess I should say, of uh, Homo sapiens sapien from the Vedas. Uh, yes, among the, the Vedas, there are many different types of Vedic literature dealing with many different topics. There's a particular group of Vedic literatures called the Puranas, or the histories, mm-hmm. which deal with the history of the universe, the history of life in the universe. And it's there that I encountered this idea of extreme human antiquity. It was something completely different than anything I learned from my teachers in high school or university. Uh, but, yeah, the dominant view in the world of science today is that humans like us first appeared less than 200,000 years ago. Before that, they would say there were no humans like us existing on this planet or anywhere else in the universe. So, uh, But these accounts and these ancient wisdom texts the Puranas, and also it's something you can find in other ancient wisdom traditions as well, the idea that humans have a very long history on this planet, going back many millions of years, right back to the very beginnings of life on Earth. I I wondered, well, is there any evidence for that? I mean, the statements are there in the text, but is there any archaeological evidence for it? And that's what got me looking into the history of archaeology. Of course, if you look in the current textbooks, you're not going to find any discoveries showing that humans like us existed in the far distant past, more than 200,000 years ago. You're just Mm -hmm. going to see the discoveries that support the now dominant idea that humans like us appeared fairly recently on this planet. But I decided to look beyond the textbooks, go back into the original scientific reports. And because of the way I was raised, I have a reading knowledge of most of the major European languages, not just English, but Spanish, German, Italian, French. I don't speak them very well, but I have a reading knowledge of them. And I decided to look at all of the archaeological reports from about the mid-19th century up to the present. And when I did that, I was astonished to find there were many archaeologists and geologists and paleontologists reporting discoveries of human bones, human footprints, human artifacts going back many millions of, of, of years. So I collected all those reports and put them in the book, Forbidden Archaeology, and I call it forbidden archaeology because it's about discoveries that you're not going to find in the textbooks today. They are reported in the scientific literature. They were discoveries made by professional scientists, but we just don't hear very much about them today. So that's how right. I 
Hold it right there. When we come back, I want to pick that up. It sounds like your spiritual finding drove your your academic pursuit. But we'll come back. We'll pick up more of this in just a minute. We're speaking with Mr. Michael Cremo about his life, teachings, and books. You can learn more about Michael by visiting his website. That's www.mcremo.com. Remember to join Ravinder and her team in the chat room. You can do that by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Do stay tuned. You're not going to want you're not going to want to miss what's coming up next. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Do you feel like you've become lost in a funhouse? Only seeing the reflection of yourself, past, future, and present, but unable to find the real you? I invite you to step through the doorway and onto the path leading to understanding of your mind, your choices, and the influences that surround you. Read Elton Taylor's New York Times best-selling book, Choices and Illusions. Now expanded, updated, and revised, it will provide you with real-life examples of how you can break free from your current perceptions and begin your journey to how high is up. Get your copy today from all bookstores or online from Amazon.com or Barnes & Noble. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're speaking with Michael Cremo about his life, teachings, and books. We ask our guests for up to three songs that really have meaning in their lives. They're life songs, if you will. It kind of peels back a layer and gives us another insight as to who our guests really are. Now, we just played some of My Sweet Lord by George Harrison, one of my favorites. Why is this song so important to you, Michael, and how does it tell us about who you are? Michael? It contains uh, uh, the chanting of the Hare Krishna mantra and other sacred sounds in it. Actually, George Harrison was influenced by uh, the same spiritual teacher that I chose to accept as my spiritual master, His Divine Grace, A.C. Bhaktivedanta Swami Prabhupada, who came uh, to the West from India in 1965 to spread the teachings of Krishna consciousness. 
And he also went to England and met uh, George Harrison and uh, some of the other members of the Beatles there. And uh, George uh, developed quite a, uh, a deep and friendly relationship with uh, my spiritual master. So uh, the song, <clears throat> My Sweet Lord, is one of my favorites, been one of my favorites since it uh, first came out a couple of decades ago. So it, it's very meaningful to me on that level. All right. Well, that, that makes perfect sense, and it ties in very well with where we left off and where I wanted to pick up. You know, there there are folks that um, maybe their event is Christian, and so they look at the Bible, the biblical text, and they date the earth uh, differently than you do. In fact, you know, a lot of creationists uh, make the earth maybe 7,000 years old or something. Is it fair to take you seriously when... It was the pariahs, the Vedic literature, that ignited your pursuit into finding archaeological anomalies? Well, here's, here's how I look at it. I respect the right of each individual to make up their own mind about questions like the one we're dealing with here, the origin and antiquity of the human species. And if someone, on the basis of their study of the Bible and the scientific evidence, comes to the conclusion that uh, the Earth and the human species are a few thousand years old, I think they have a right to do that. They have a right to express their opinion. And I think others have a right to make up their own mind about that question, even uh, even uh, if someone concludes that you know the Darwinian theory of evolution, as it's taught by its scientific supporters in the schools today, is the best way to go about it, I think I think they have a perfect right to come to that conclusion. What I don't think anybody has a right to do is use government to oppose, to use government to impose, excuse me, use government to impose their ideas on everyone. <clears throat> uh, so that's well, where I concur I would, with that. But I on the would, other hand, on I the other hand, the on the so, other hand, Michael, uh, having an opinion. Um, and, and I concur with you totally. We should all have that right. And, and I totally concur that government shouldn't have a right to, to impose upon us a perspective. I mean, not, not the kind of government that we have come to hold and cherish as, as the American way or any free world for that matter, uh, free country. But isn't there a difference? Don't we distinguish between an opinion and what we call a body of science, uh, the so-called, you know, hard data. Well, even in terms of the hard data of science, there can be questions about what. No, and that's where I want you to go. Yes. So, you know, for example, uh, I'm very open about the fact that. A lot of my research was originally inspired by my studies of the Puranas. 
if I hadn't read the Puranas, I wouldn't have had a reason to question what I'd always learned in school and high school and university from my teachers about this question of human origins and antiquity. But, um, you know, I regularly present papers at international scientific conferences. Now, when I go there, I can't expect uh, someone to accept a statement from the Puranas or the Bible or the Quran as scientific evidence, of, as proof of anything. Sure. Now, if, if I were to go to the Himalayan mountains and have a meeting with some Vedic sages, they would accept a statement from the Puranas as evidence. So when I go to a scientific conference, as I do, or I go to speak at a university, as I often do, I present things like this. If what the Puranas say is true about human antiquity, then there should be archaeological reports for humans existing far longer than 200,000 years ago. And then I just present those reports, which are there. They are in the professional scientific literature. They're not very well known or very much appreciated, and you're not going to find them in today's textbooks. So I just ask people if they're going to make a decision about something, they should be aware of the full range of facts. And if certain facts aren't very well known, then we have to ask, why is that? It, it may be because of a process of knowledge filtration operating in the world of science. So those are the kinds of questions yeah. that now, come you know, up. I want to get into the specificity of, of your book, and, and, and it is indeed an enthralling uh, book. There's no question about that. But, but before we do, you've been quoted as essentially making the argument that science is frauding. You know, uh, it, it, this part of science is a fraud. And that would, you know, I, I mean, I'm... I, I'm thinking back to an earlier statement having to do with secret knowledge, your father's involvement in the Air Force intelligence. I have a bit of an intelligence background myself. I can, I know that there is such a thing as secret knowledge. Uh, but there's always an agenda attached to that knowledge. I mean, it isn't just knowledge that, that um, you maintain for no reason at all. Um, do you believe then, I mean, are you saying that there is an an intention, an, a willful intention to misrepresent the facts on behalf of the scientific community with regard to um, the extant nature of man? Well, what I'm talking about is something that's very well understood by historians and philosophers of science, namely that Theoretical preconceptions can influence how scientists react to different categories of evidence that come to their attention. If there is, and this, this has been studied by uh, philosophers of science and historians of science for a long time, and if there's a dominant consensus in 
the world of science about a certain question, Hume's in, paradigm, in this case, yeah. human antiquity, then evidence that tends to conform to the consensus will pass through what I call the knowledge filter very easily, whereas evidence that radically contradicts a dominant consensus will be treated in a, in a, 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 a different way. It's not that scientists think, well, here's some true evidence which, if known, would cause people to disbelieve in our theories, and therefore we have to hide it. Uh, that, that, that's not what I'm really talking about. The people engaged in the knowledge filtering process would consider themselves to be acting as responsible scientists, uh, supporting what the vast majority of scientists believe to be true, and they would just consider something has to be wrong with this contradictory evidence. Uh, there, there, there must have been some mistake made on the part of the original discoverer. There must have been some hoaxing or uh, cheating involved. Uh, there, so, so. The, the knowledge filtering process that I'm talking about is not, you know, a, a conspiracy theory right. or something of that nature. But I got you. You're basically, you know, talking about how difficult it is to make the paradigm change. Uh, the Thomas yeah, Kuhn, I think, uh, it is. Kuhn okay. wrote about and, it. Yeah, and I, and, and I get that. But on the, you know, on the other hand. You know, there there isn't just a resistance to new ideas. There's also uh, an attachment to the old, such so much so that you can have outright fraud, uh, a la the Piltdown Man. Why don't you you know tell us about that? Tell us how it fits into this picture. Well, there there can be instances as part of that overall process of knowledge filtration. There can be cases of outright scientific fraud that does occur in archaeology it occurs in modern biomedical physics uh, everything else sure yeah it includes yeah so that can happen the piltdown case is interesting during the early part of the 20th century scientists were very much looking for what they called missing links they were looking for discoveries that would connect ancient apes with modern humans. In other words, they were looking for intermediates between apes and humans. And up to that point, they hadn't found very many. So uh, there was a case in England early in the 20th century at a place called Piltdown where scientists discovered uh, a skull, a skull cap that was very human-like and a jawbone that was very ape-like, and they put put the two together, and they called it Piltdown Man, and it was considered to be evidence for evolution, and it was in the textbooks for 40 or 50 years until uh, in, in the 1950s, <clears throat> some English scientists determined that it was an elaborate scientific fraud. In other words, somebody had taken uh, the bones and 
stain them artificially so that they look very ancient. In other words, somebody had taken a modern ape jaw and stained it so that it looked like a very old fossil and buried it in uh, this formation along with the skull cap. And it, it was a very elaborate, elaborate hoax. It would have taken somebody with a high degree of scientific training to carry it off. And right. apparently they did, and it was undiscovered for 40 or 50 years. So <clears throat> that, that means that in some cases scientists have been prepared to manufacture evidence that supports the theory they believe to be true. In other words, when they can't find the evidence, they manufacture it and right. build down. And the interesting thing is, when, of that. When, sometimes when you look at these things, like the, the Piltdown, uh, you, and you look at it in a larger context, what was going on socially, what what could have possibly been the motivation, da da da, da. sometimes we discover that it's more than just, uh, you know, that scientific zeal, that, that search for fame and glory. Sometimes there are very important reasons, uh, arguments that uh, are settled that way. On that subject, I, I remember an anthropology course that I had at university where uh, the Piltdown matter was discussed. But at the same time, in that same course, we happened to be looking at what the Leakies had done in Olduvai Gorge. And um, there, and I know you know this far better than I do, but there... Uh, the idea was as they went down the, the, the different layers in this uh, river gorge that they were actually finding antecedent forms to hominid uh, life or development. But it was my understanding that the, the, the after managing, I don't remember how many levels, four or five levels successfully, they came on Homo sapien sapien again at a much older age than that. And I can remember asking the anthropology professor, well, what does that mean? And she basically shrugged. Well, those are the kinds of things that do come up. Now, I think, I mean, you did hit on an important question, that there are larger issues uh, behind uh, these kinds of reactions. I think one of the larger issues has to do with the fact that the alternatives to the current theories of human origins tend to involve some kind of non-material principles. You know, the current theories of human origins are based on the concept that really we're just machines made of matter, machines made of molecules that have come about in a purely naturalistic, material way. Uh, you know, for example, the, the English evolutionary scientist Richard Dawkins puts it nicely in sure. one of his books. You know, he says, we are survival machines, robot vehicles, blindly programmed to preserve the selfish molecules known as genes. In other words, we're just machines made of molecules. We're purely material beings. That's significant because the goal and values that we set for ourselves individually and collectively depend to a large extent on our sense of self 
our sense of identity. If we're being told to identify ourselves as machines made of matter, then our goals and values will tend to be extremely materialistic. We'll tend to think that to produce and consume more and more material things is the main purpose of human life. And if we do that, there are powerful interests in society that benefit from that, that benefit financially from that. There are powerful financial and political interests that benefit from keeping populations totally absorbed in material production and consumption to the exclusion of everything else. So I think the current theories of human origins contribute to that by giving us a rather purely materialistic conception of the self. And the alternatives to the current theories tend to involve something non-material, the idea that there is uh, a non-material conscious self. Most scientists today would say, well, consciousness is produced by chemicals interacting in the brain. Uh, and, And in the process of evolution, the chemicals in the brain come to interact in such a complex way that they produce what we call consciousness. In other words, it's a very matter-based picture. However, the alternatives, including the alternative that I'm proposing, involve consciousness as having an existence separate from matter. Matter doesn't produce consciousness, but consciousness can come into association with, with matter. And if that's true, the main purpose of human life then becomes developing the resource of consciousness, freeing consciousness from its contact with matter, which would mean satisfying our material needs in the most simple, natural, and efficient way possible. In other words, not putting 100% of our human energy into material production and consumption, but only the minimum necessary to satisfy our material needs while putting most of our human energy into restoring consciousness to its original pure state apart from matter. So I think there are some fundamental issues lying in in the background of all of these questions that help determine the way that scientists and other researchers deal with evidence and theories related to these questions. Well, particularly how what we might and what is termed as the elite might embrace what uh, what theory it is is going to be supported, as you mentioned earlier, when government supports a theory. Okay, so let's let's do this. We're not meat machines. Um, you know, your your argument is that consciousness exists independent of matter, and therefore you know, it takes on a material form for some reason, and immediately we move from any discussion of science into something called metaphysics or meta-science, do we not? Uh, yes, but there are areas of science that are at least tangentially related to these things. Uh, for example, you could look at medical studies of out-of-body experiences, which tend to show that there is a conscious self that can exist separately from the brain, separately from uh, 
matter. There are psychiatric studies of past life memories, again, which tend to show there's a conscious self that can exist separately from the body made of matter and transfer from one material embodiment to another. So there are some areas of scientific research that are related to this whole question. It's not There's that actually a good deal of evidence that would, would argue that mind is not a local event. And, and what you've mentioned, you know, together with maybe uh, remote prayers and, and meditation, lowering crime rates, and uh, watching cells in a Petri dish uh, respond five miles away to electric shock given half of the cells back in the lab. Those kinds of things all collaborate what you're saying. I guess... Right. Yeah, my, you know, my my question is really goes to this: uh, How do we bridge from a strict Darwinian model, which you know obviously cannot stand given the evidence that you put forward, or at least if it does, not in the way that a Richard Dawkins would promote that? How how do we? How do we bridge from the old paradigm to a new paradigm in a stepped scientific way, which to me would mean we're going to have to leave out, uh, you know, the necessity of incorporating a meta nature of uh, the, whether it's meta science or metaphysics to this entire matter. Uh, and, and I want you to hold that question because we're coming up on our station break. And when we come back from the station break, let's pick it up there. How do we move? How do you move from where the paradigm is now to where the paradigm should ought to be? If you'd like to know more about our guest, Mr. Michael Cremo, and his work, do visit his website. It's mcremo, C-R-E-M-O dot com. Or you can check out the links on provocativeenlightenment.com. All right, we have a film featuring our guests for you in the chat room during our break. So if you're not already there, now's the time to get there. Remember, just go to provocativeenlightenment.com and choose the chat room button near the top of the page. All right, we'll be right back after a brief station break. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. We are all very aware of the power of belief. But are you aware that many times it is your inner beliefs that cause you to sabotage your own dreams and goals? Success is so much more likely when your inner beliefs are in line with your outer goals. And now, using Eldon Taylor's InnerTalk technology, you can do just this. InnerTalk is a patented subliminal technology and is the only such technology to be researched by numerous independent universities and institutions, including Stanford, and been demonstrated effective at priming your self-talk. There are hundreds of titles to choose from, ranging from weight loss to esteem, organized and efficient to prosperity and abundance, attracting the right love relationship to winning sports performance, accelerated learning to accelerated healing. Eldon Taylor's patented InnerTalk technology is your key to success. Check it out today. Visit www.innertalk.com. That's I-N-N-E-R-T-A-L-K.com. InnerTalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Eldon Taylor.
Welcome back. If you're just joining us, we're chatting with Mr. Michael Cremo about his teachings and books. But before we get back to the show, I want to invite you to join me on Facebook. I post regularly everything from where I am and what's on next to the latest in science, technology, and consciousness studies. And from time to time, some of my own opinions about the world we live in. And... I love your comments and feedback, and Facebook is a great place for that. So please give me a like and join me at facebook.com forward slash Dr. Eldon Taylor. That's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. All right, now we just played some of your second musical choice, Michael. We are Spirits in the Material World by the Police. You know, that's that's pretty well timed with our conversation. So what's the story on this one, sir? Well, when I when I heard that song first in the 1980s, I I wanted to adopt it as one of my anthems because it just really says what I have based my life and research on. Namely, we are spirits in the material world. We're we're not just machines made of made of molecules. So it's it's one of my anthems. It it really speaks for itself. You know the the refrain, we are spirits in the material world. And, and, and you know, I, I was unfamiliar with the song, I guess for some reason, I, I must have missed it, but, you know, it is very catchy, and I do like the lyrics. All right, we left off with, how do we move from a paradigm, an existing paradigm, to a new paradigm, one that would involve all of the data um, without you know, necessarily stepping into the world of meta, uh, or can we do that? Have we uh, have we actually come to some point in science, not just in archaeology, you're obviously familiar with neuroscience and, and other areas, but have we come to a point where we're going to have to, even in our study of physics, incorporate consciousness in order to find that grand unifying theory or to resolve some of these anomalies in archaeology, et cetera, and so forth? Well, I, I think the answer to that question is is yes. But I think there's, there's also a, a political element to this because we're not just existing in a situation where all ideas have equal access to the centers of power. A, a, a book that really influenced me a lot was a book by a, a philosopher of science, Paul Feyerabend. It's called Science in a Free Society. Right. And one of the, I mean, it, it's an amazing book, and he has some key insights. What one thing he, you know, he, he said in that book was. A free society is a society in which all traditions have equal rights and equal access to the centers of power. Uh, not that uh, individuals have equal rights of access to positions defined by one tradition, the tradition of Western materialistic science. In other words, uh, there should be real diversity. There, I, I think we we may have to return to a position where there's some metaphysical diversity in the in the world of science, where science can be carried out according to different metaphysical conceptions. Okay. Science made a decision about three or four centuries ago to concentrate strictly on 
material aspects of things. If you go back to science four or five hundred years ago, right. in the in the West, you'll see that the worldview incorporated subtle energies that incorporated the idea of some overall guiding intelligence. It, it incorporated non-material substances. But around four or five hundred years ago, scientists made a decision to just focus on observable matter that could be described according to mathematical laws. And that was productive in a way for science. Namely, they were able to learn a whole lot about how matter operated, how it could be controlled and applied in technology. So scientists were able to invent weapons. They were able to invent uh, consumer products. They were able to invent pharmaceuticals that could be marketed. And this gave a tremendous amount of prestige in government. And it had a lot of economic implications. So governments decided, this is really great. We can get weapons from these people. I mean, most recently they gave governments atomic weapons and things of that sort. They gave them... Drones. Uh, all, you know, you know uh, they, they gave them... Uh, they gave corporations uh, all kinds of products that could be marketed and sold all over the world. They gave uh, pharmaceuticals that could be marketed all over the world and create a whole medical system based on it. So there was there were a lot of benefits to narrowing the focus of science to observable matter operating according to predictable, mathematically describable laws. But that was done at the expense of not having a complete picture of reality, leaving out vast areas of human experience with some very bad social results, environmental destruction, intense levels of conflict uh, on all levels of human society. And I don't think <clears throat> that uh, pushing science more in the direction it's gone for the past three or four centuries is going to help anymore. It's, it's, the problems are just going to increase. So I think unless we have a complete picture of reality, unless we incorporate into our scientific worldview everything that should be there, we're not going to move beyond this. So... So I think among the things we need to incorporate into our scientific worldview are different vital and vital energies that are associated with the human organism and subtle intellectual and mental energies among them, and then a non-conscious, I mean, excuse me, a non-material conscious self that completely transcends all of these material designations. I think these things have to be incorporated into a truly scientific worldview if we're going to have a complete picture of reality. Excluding them has not really worked. Yeah, I'm familiar with some institutes uh, 
higher learning uh, universities, for that matter, like Holos, that are beginning to do this kind of thing. T- tell me this. I, I should have asked you in the in the very get-go, but um, Bakteve Danta Institute, what, what is it all about? Uh, that was an institute that was set up by my spiritual master in the 1970s. And bhakti means devotion, it means love, and Vedanta means knowledge, or the end of all knowledge. So it was an institute that was meant to reintroduce into the scientific worldview the elements that have been excluded over the past few centuries, namely the idea that there is some overall guiding intelligence that's responsible for some of the order and complexity that we observe around us in the universe. It's meant to reintroduce the idea of a non-material conscious self that is responsible for the life symptoms and, and uh, so this is, you know, the, the purpose of that institute, okay. with which I was associated for many years. Bhaktivedanta, totally the love of knowledge, right? Yes. Bhaktivedanta, love of knowledge, kind of like yes. Sophia and philosophy, huh? Yes. <laughs> All right. Eastern versus Western. Uh, I want to get into the specificity of, of some of your, your difference, or some of your findings, I guess I should say here, but... But you have us on the edge of a relevant question, and so I'll tick that one off. What do you mean by human devolution? By that, I'm referring to our nature as conscious individual selves. Most scientists now believe that that our consciousness evolves up from matter. In other words, if you organize matter in a sufficiently complex way, it will generate what we call consciousness, but only temporarily and only in association with the chemicals in the brain. When at the time of death, the chemicals in the brain become disorganized, they would say, no more consciousness. So it's a very matter-based picture of who, who we are. Uh, what I'm proposing is that consciousness has its own independent existence. We originally exist as beings of pure consciousness. Somehow or other, we have come into association with matter. We've become covered by matter. But that process by which the conscious self becomes covered over by matter is what I call devolution. In other words, as conscious individual persons, we don't evolve up from matter. Rather, we devolve or come down from the level of pure consciousness into association with matter. So that's the main sense in which I use the word devolution. Okay, Okay, so now let's see if we can get some timetables right. We're spiritual essence and we devolve into physical world, obviously for some reason, some purpose. Uh, but with setting that aside, what is your timetable for when this first took place on this planet? Well, the Vedic cosmology involves a 
cyclical concept of time. It also involves multi-universes, millions of universes that come into being and go into a dormant state, come into being. You know, there are constant cycles of creation and destruction of universes and planets and things like that. So there hasn't been just one creation. Uh, But the basic unit of this Vedic cyclical time is called the Kalpa, or the Day of Brahma. And according to the ancient text, it lasts uh, about four billion years. We're now about halfway through the current creation cycle. So that means, according to these ancient texts, we would expect to find evidence for life going back about two billion years, which is kind of interesting because that's in roughly the same ballpark as the modern scientific estimates for the age of life on Earth, you know, in the low billions of years. It's kind of interesting. Now they've started a new version of the TV series Cosmos that was originally aired right. with Carl Sagan. In one uh-huh. of the, the original episodes, you know, Carl Sagan was uh, mentioning how among all the different traditional time concepts, the time concept of the ancient Indian cosmology was the most compatible with the modern scientific time scales. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so, in terms of your question, I would say we would expect to find evidence for human existence going back as far as a couple billion years. Okay, so you would expect to find the evidence. Have you found any such evidence? Uh, not very much, but it's it's to be expected that the further back you go in time, the less archaeological or fossil evidence there's going to be. I mean, geologists tell us that of all the sedimentary layers that have ever been laid down on Earth, which is where you would find fossil evidence, uh, you will expect to see that about 90% of it has been destroyed over time. Of course, the older the layers are, the more likely they are to have eroded away or been destroyed by different geological processes. So the further back in time you go, the sparser the evidence becomes. But I did find a case of uh, in South Africa, there were some uh, round metallic objects found that had parallel grooves going around their equators, and they're in deposits that date back a couple of billion years. The oldest skeletal evidence for a human presence it goes back about 300 million years. There was a report published in a scientific journal called The Geologist in the year 1862 that told of a, an anatomically modern human skeleton that was found 90 feet below the surface of the ground in McCoupin County in the state of Illinois that's near St. Louis. 
according to modern geologists, the formation at that level, at that part of the state, is about 300 million years old. Uh, there are human footprints or shoe prints that go back over 500 million years. Uh, one of these, in one of these cases, a fossil hunter named William Meister found a shoe print and layers of rock about uh, 550 million years old at a place called Antelope Springs in Utah. Uh, there are human artifacts that go back about the same period. There was a, a report in Scientific American in the year 1852 that a metallic vase was found 15 feet deep in solid rock in Dorchester, which is part of Boston. According to modern geologists, the formations there are about 600 million years old. So there are a number of cases showing a very ancient human presence going back much further in time than the 200,000 or so years. Most so, let me ask you this, Michael. I don't want to interrupt you, but let me ask you this. Now, you know, the Piltdown fraud we discussed, it's, it's a fraud, and, and it had its agenda. Uh, you know, what is there that uh, that says that maybe Antelope Springs or some of these others aren't also frauds with their own agendas? Well, what I do in my books is I present all of the evidence, even the evidence of people who argue against the discoveries, and I leave it up to the reader to make up his or her own, own mind. But in the case of the Antelope Springs case, there uh, you have the imprint of a shoe in ancient sediments, and in the middle of the sediments is a crushed ancient shellfish called a trilobite. And the trilobite is characteristic, it's a characteristic fossil of the early Cambrian period, which goes back about 500 million to 550 million years ago and uh, yeah the shoe print is right on that so uh, and if you look at the pattern of the shoe print you see it's exactly like a print of a modern shoe with the heel worn down in a particular place. You know, my Forbidden Archaeology co-author, Richard Thompson, went to Utah and visited William Meister and saw the specimen himself and photographed it. So it's uh, something that really exists, and there's fossil evidence that verifies the age of it. And but still, I'm going to leave it up to any individual person to make up 
their own mind about it. In my book, Forbidden Archaeology, I document hundreds of cases like this. If it was just one or two or five or ten cases like this, maybe you could dismiss them all as mistakes, hoaxes. But when we have hundreds of such cases, I think we have to start asking some questions. And one of the things that I like about your book is what you just brought out, the fact that you do illustrate both sides of the story and do then not argue for one or the other, but let the facts, uh, you know, seek, you know, how, how does that saying go? Well, my what preference, my preference go does go towards the extreme human antiquity, but uh, I not do necessarily leave it to the reader to make up his or her own mind about it. Right, it, it, especially in each individual case as you go along, because you can take many of these cases, you can Google it, and you can find all kinds of skeptical remarks about it, and for that matter, about yourself and your work and your sure. co-author and so forth. <clears throat> but you would you would expect that to be the instance. What I'm saying, and 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 I, I guess it goes to compliment you, is that. I didn't get the abiding sense while reading your book that you were attempting to unfairly persuade me that you were loading a side of an argument over another side. <clears throat> Correct well, me if you. I'm wrong. <laughs> okay. I, I, I did try to include the counter-arguments if I was aware of them in any about any particular case that I was dealing with. Right. Now, you know, you kind of made a target out of yourself with uh, with your books, and not just uh, Forbidden Archaeology, but with all of your books. And so y you must find it difficult to continue your work and deal with some of these naysayers. How do you handle that? Well, you know, it would be nice to be living at a time when one's personal ideas were the dominant mainstream ideas. Uh, but sometimes we just don't have that luxury. That isn't the, the situation that we find ourselves in. So then one just has to decide uh, whether or not one is going to promote one's ideas even if they're not the mainstream ideas backed by thousands and thousands of uh, professors and universities all over the world and being promoted in textbooks all over the world. We're uh, going to acquiesce. I'm going to have to ask you to hold it right there. I'm sorry, Michael. Uh, but we have a hard break coming up, and I don't want the computer to kick us out. Uh, we hope you're enjoying our show today. We'll be back in just a couple of minutes, and it is your turn to ask Mr. Cremo whatever you would like. So we'll take your calls in our last half hour. If you have a question for Michael, do call in or get into that chat room. Stay tuned. We've saved the best for last. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Have you talked to yourself lately? What does that inner voice say? Are you constantly hearing negative feedback? Ready for a change? InnerTalk, Eldon Taylor's patented subliminal technology, can do just that. Change your inner self-talk. 
Turn off the negative by replacing it with positive affirmations. Inner talk has been researched at universities such as Stanford and by governments around the world and has been proven effective at priming your self-talk. Armed with a new positive outlook, you'll find everything becomes easier, from losing weight to stop smoking, giving presentations to riding horses, learn new things to being a powerful salesperson. Choose your title for change today. Visit www.innertalk.com. That's I-N-N-E-R-T-A-L-K.com. Innertalk.com. Hi, I'm Eldon Taylor, and you're listening to Provocative Enlightenment Radio. I'm so glad you could join me as we tackle those tough questions in search of the answers that really matter. But remember, this is a journey we are undertaking together, so I would love to hear your thoughts as well. Please send your comments to Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at eldontaylor.com. You can also join in the conversation by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor, that's D-R-E-L-D-O-N-T-A-Y-L-O-R. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. If you just joined us, we're speaking with Michael Cremo about his findings, teachings, and books. We will take your phone calls in this half hour. So if you have questions of our guest, either give us a call or submit your question in our chat room. Ravinder and her team are there to put your questions forward. Okay, Michael, we just played some of Instant Karma by John Lennon. Why is this music important to you, sir? Well, because I'm always working on trying to get myself together because I realize there is something called karma, that what goes around comes around, whatever we're putting out to the universe is going to come back on us in some way. It's uh, So I'm. it's always good for me to, to be reminded of that. That's why I like that song. You know, you, you think of karma, and of course you think of dharma. The two of them, you know, they're like opposite sides of the same coin. That we is dis- true. That is absolutely true. And we were discussing just before the break how you stand up to some of the stuff that flies at you. I mean, uh, for example, uh, one of the comments that I, I located, uh, well, and there were, you know, 
I don't want to say there were many, but there are some arguments out there against your work. You know, they basically say, you know, is he a fraud or is it incompetent? He's relying on, you know, evidence from the 19th and 20th century, and he's ignoring newer evidence and da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It takes a great deal of courage to come forward and do what you're doing. And, and of course, that addresses your dharma. Do you see that as uh, an important part of your path in this lifetime? Well, dharma means duty. And dharma has to be carried out even under difficult circumstances. But, uh, you know... If anybody takes a stand about anything, there are going to be people who agree with them, people who disagree with them, people who just don't care. And if one isn't prepared for that or one finds that uncomfortable, then probably the best thing is just to be quiet. (laughs) But... uh, so I, I I don't think I'm alone in saying things that people disagree with. I mean, even no. if you're the president of the United States, uh, there are going to be people who agree with you and disagree with you and say unpleasant things about your motives and your competence. And right. I, I think that just comes with the territory. Of, I agree. Been there, done that. My question is, do you see this as your duty, what you're doing? Is this a part of your duty, this go-round? Uh, yes, I do think it, it it is part of my dharma. Yeah, I've made some commitments in my life, and I'm prepared to stand up for them. Now, it, it's... Uh, Now, I will say that on the positive side, I think most people agree with me on a lot of the things that I'm saying. Now, if you say about the scientific establishment, most of them will disagree with me. But among people in uh, general, uh, most people, for example, in, in this country, the United States of America, don't accept you know, the Darwinian theory of evolution as it's presented to them. Uh, Big numbers, huge numbers of people, according to Gallup surveys, have had what they would call paranormal experiences that go along with the idea that we're something more than just machines made of molecules operating according to known physical and chemical laws. So... Uh, I don't feel that I'm all alone. I I feel there are a lot of people who agree with the kinds of things that I'm saying. There are a lot of people who are uh, comfortable not being in the mainstream. So I feel encouraged in that way. But whether or not people agree with me or disagree with me, my dharma tells me I should stand up for what I believe to be the truth. I so it. I love it. Let's let's do this. Let's get kind of a, a, a larger picture, if we may. 
and I and and in this picture, you know, I'm going to call upon all levels of your understanding, multidisciplinary as well as metaphysical. It's you, the man that you've done the evidence. You you must have come to certain opinions. We have in a Darwinian model not just you know the evolution of the meat machine per se. Uh, the absence of, you know, uh, consciousness arising as a result of anything other than, as you say, the organization of neurochemicals, etc., a function of purely brain. Now, in your model, you have a, a different structure. When does this begin? Why does it begin? Why, why is, why is consciousness? What, what is consciousness? Why is man? Um, uh. And forgive me, humankind. Why is humankind? There I go with Okay, anyhow, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Well, consciousness, according to the Vedic worldview, is sat, chit, ananda. Sat means it's always existing, it's eternal. Chit means it's full of knowledge, and ananda means it's full of pleasure. So that is the natural state of consciousness. It, it is something that is neither created nor destroyed. It exists eternally. It has no beginning, no end. There is a source of all conscious beings. And we're originally meant to exist in harmony with the source of all conscious beings and with all other conscious beings in a condition of sat-chit-ananda, full existence, full knowledge, and full enjoyment or pleasure. If a conscious self becomes egotistical, it can no longer exist in that harmonious state. So there must be another place for it to act out its desires to dominate, control, and exploit others. And that is the world of matter. And consciousness, the conscious selves who enter into the world of matter, they have two options. To either enter more and more deeply into the project of trying to dominate, control, and exploit matter in competition with each other, or come back to the original understanding that we're all beings of pure consciousness who are originally meant to exist in loving harmony outside the world of matter. So uh, this world of matter has two purposes, either to be an opportunity to return to the original state of pure consciousness or an opportunity to become more and more deeply entangled in trying to dominate, control, and exploit matter and other conscious living entities. So the choice is up to us which path we're going to take. Interesting. Now, you actually have case studies uh, looking at human devolution, share your favorite. Give us an example of what a case study of human devolution is. Well, what you know, I, I use the word you know devolution in the main sense of 
conscious self having an existence apart from matter and also having powers that many people would consider to be paranormal. Now, many people will say all, all this is just totally outside the realm of science, but I think that means they don't know the actual you know, history of science, how many scientists have been involved in such research that shows that there are uh, powers associated with the human organism that right. go beyond what we can explain by our current laws of physics and chemistry. Uh, you know, for example, the work of the Curies. Every physics student learns about the work of Marie Curie and her husband, Pierre Curie. They both got Nobel Prizes for their work in discovering uh, radium and a lot of the phenomenon connected with radioactivity. What we don't read in the textbooks is that they were heavily involved in psychical research. They were part of a group of about 20 prominent European scientists who were doing such research in Paris early in the 20th century. They were doing experiments with mediums. They did two years of experiments with a medium named Eusebia Palladino, who had psychokinetic abilities, mind over matter types of abilities. You know, for example, on one occasion, they had this woman in the, psycho the lab laboratory of the Psychology Institute in Paris, and Marie Curie was holding her hands, other scientists were holding her feet, making sure she wasn't moving at all. And in the middle of the laboratory, in what Pierre Curie, the Nobel Prize winning physicist, called perfect conditions of observation and broad daylight. You know, a large table was floating about three feet off the ground in the presence of this woman. And after two years of such results, the entire group of scientists signed documents saying these things are absolutely true. And Pierre Curie wrote letters to his prominent physicist friends saying, yeah, we have to take these things into account if we're going to have a complete picture of reality. So it's part of the history of physics. You could say there's, just like there's a, a forbidden archaeology, there's a forbidden physics. There's a... Right an actual history of physics that most people aren't really aware of. And if they were aware of it, we would have a completely different picture of physical reality than we now are presented with by current generations of physicists. You going to write that book? Well, part of it's there in human devolution. Uh, you know, I wanted to give an introduction to an alternative physics in, in that book. But, you know, so part of it's there. I don't know. I've got so many books I want to write. They're like airplanes circling uh, around <laughs> up above, and, you know, the air traffic control's got to bring them down. 
one after another. I don't know how many of them are going to get down to the ground of being written <laughs> in the years that I've got left, but I'll get as many of them as I can down on the ground in print form. What have you been working on lately then, Michael? Well, I'm actually, you know, in the years since Forbidden Archaeology was published in 1993, many more cases have come to my attention and some new things about some of the cases I wrote about in that book have come to my attention. So it's I've got a huge stack of scientific papers here, and I'm working on a book called More Forbidden archaeology in which I'm going to incorporate all that data. So that's my immediate project. And then when I finish that, the next thing I want to move on to is I've been in a kind of a constant dialogue with my readers. You know, the my first uh, major book, Forbidden Archaeology, came out. After it came out, people asked me, what has been the impact of your book on scientists? How are they reacting to it? So I wrote a book called Forbidden Archaeology's Impact, in which I gave all the scientific reactions to my work, both positive and negative, along with my correspondence with scientists. And then, and then people asked me, well, you've got all this archaeological evidence that contradicts the current theories of human origin." what are you going to propose in its place? So I, in response to those kinds of questions, I wrote the book Human Devolution, a Vedic alternative to uh, Darwin's theory. And people have asked me, has any new evidence come to your attention since you wrote Forbidden Archaeology? So to respond to that, I'm writing more Forbidden Archaeology. But uh, another question people have been asking uh, they they know I'm inspired by the ancient Sanskrit writings of India, and they understand that in my books thus far, I've given a lot of scientific evidence that supports some of the ideas that I've got from these Vedic sources. So now people are asking me, okay, they say to me, okay, you've, you've given us all this, scientific justification for what these Vedic texts say. Now we would like to know more directly what the Vedic texts themselves have to say about these questions of the origin of human life and human consciousness. So, and, and they want it without you know, the scientific justification. So, the next book after More Forbidden Archaeology will be a, a book in which I uh, bring together everything I can find that the ancient Sanskrit texts have to say about human history and human origins and human antiquity, and I'll present, present, present that. So those are the I look forward to that one. We'll have to and of bring course, back. those books, those books take years to write. So to kind of give myself the gratification of instantly writing something, I write a column, a regular column for Atlantis Rising magazine called 
the forbidden archaeologist. So those are the things I'm working on immediately. Is that available on the Internet? Uh, Atlantis Rising? Yeah. Uh, I think they, if you go to AtlantisRising.com, I think they do offer a, a, a PDF subscription in addition to their print. So, so we, could, we could find your articles there. All right, we have a question out of the chat room, and then I've got a big question for you I've been saving for last. But uh, Mark says, so far, Michael has only offered isolated instances of evidence without any recurring evidence to substantiate it. For example, the shoe print. Can he comment on this, please? Uh, well, there are many more, of course, you know, in in an hour radio show that goes over all different kinds of topics. No kidding. Kind of hard to present everything, but there's a lot of uh, footprint evidence. Uh, You know, for example, in 1979, Mary Leakey found footprints at a place called Le Tole in the country of Tanzania and East Africa. The footprints were found in layers of solidified volcanic ash about four million years old and she said in her original report published in National Geographic magazine that the footprints were indistinguishable from modern human footprints so I take that as footprint evidence showing that humans like us were present four million years ago she wouldn't agree with me she she would say uh, there must have been some sort of ape man who had feet exactly like modern human feet. Uh, A rare there, mutation. <laughs> there are other, uh, you know, footprint. There's other footprint evidence from other parts of the world, you know, showing that humans like us were present millions of years ago. Uh, there's a case I'm researching now for my book, More Forbidden Archaeology. It comes from uh, southern Italy, where, again, human footprints were found in volcanic deposits a couple of uh, hundred thousand years old. So there, it's not that they're just, there's just one case of footprint evidence for extreme human antiquity. There are actually right. there, there are many cases. And we could go into more of them. Forbidden archaeology, for what it's worth, is 900-plus pages. Um, it's uh, voluminous, and that is but one of the books that you've heard us addressing today. Uh, and regardless of uh, what your ultimate conclusion is, I do agree that, uh, you know, this, this is a book that... Uh, is definitely worth looking at when it comes to regarding the antiquity of human beings in uh, in a complete light. You know, we should all be open to the evidence, whatever that evidence suggests, despite the fact that it may may run against what we would like it to believe. Here's my question for you, sir. There's a lot of work today on consciousness, a lot of work... Uh, that shows that for all intent and purposes, you know, we're operating with at least what we call the conscious and the unconscious. Moreover, the unconscious is making the decisions for the conscious. In fact, MRI techni- technicians, uh, 
Using fMRI can actually watch your brain while you make a choice in 6 to 10 seconds in advance of you knowing what you will decide. That MRI technician can record exactly what you're going to do. So the real question comes down to one of free will. Uh, if the mind is making all these decisions at an unconscious level and it's, uh, you know, the script in there is just a matter of all the garbage that we have taken in in our lifetimes, whether that was uh, the television set or the billboards or the no-don't syndromes that we're raised under, um, if, if, if that's what's going on in life, what sense does it make to talk about free will, and how does free will interface with your theory of human devolution? Mm. Well, it has something to do with uh, karma. We make I gave you the decisions. question with one minute to go, so please quickly, sir. Um, we make decisions exercising our free will that impose certain results on us that come to us. But we always have... The, and, and I'm sorry. The, I, I, I'm, I am being advised that we are just out of time. Okay. I should have our gotten in there. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah. Karma, we'll leave it at that. Uh, do get the book, Michael Cremo's Forbidden Archaeology. I'm sorry we're out of time. Remember, until next time, wherever you are in the world, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at eldentaylor.com.